are in our series entitled Preeminent. Now, I know that there are many people here today that English is not your first language. Um, I do talk fast, so forgive me for that, but I, I will try to define words as I go along. The word preeminent means the best, the top. There is nothing higher. It is above everything else. And we are in a series, uh, several different sermons, where we are looking what it means to have Jesus to be preeminent in all of our lives. And in the past few weeks, we have been walking through this book of the Bible called Colossians, as the Apostle Paul wrote this um, in several, I mean, almost 2,000 years ago to the church at Colossae, which is now in modern day. Turkey. And he was writing to them, and he was talking about what it means to be a Christ follower in that period of time. Many people had converted to Christianity, and so he is showing them what it means to look, uh, to be a Christ follower in the midst of this world. And so he talks about uh, Christ being preeminent in our lives. And as we have seen over the past few weeks, we have seen Christ being preeminent in our families or in our marriages. Um, and, and today, we're going to see how Christ is preeminent in our work. Uh, and we're going to spend a lot of our lives in work. Is that not right? Uh, We often think, though, of work as separate from our faith. This is what we do in order to get money, in order to live. This isn't who we are, or maybe we get so much into it that we find all of our identity in our work. And we separate, though, our work from our faith. And that's not how it is to be. When we talk about how Christ is to be preeminent in all of our lives, we need to see that it's not, faith is not a part of our life, that it is our life. See, when we talk about our faith, many of us describe it as a belief. God's plan of salvation for man. However, to God and to the early church, it was much more than that. We see it only in regards to personal salvation and feel to fail to see that it as is a salvation that is seen in total life transformation. So it's not just this salvation away from all of our life. It is a salvation that is inside and coming out of us as God has touched us to every aspect of our life. It is not outward conformity, but inner transformation. God wants the heart, not just your outward obedience. He wants your inward inward uh, heart, your, your, the, who you are as a person. He wants your love. So we have to understand that. And then that part of uh, our life is not, it doesn't just become a part, it becomes everything. Christ Christ becomes and is our life. He defines everything. And it is through him that we learn who God is, who we are, and how we are to live. Now, C.S. Lewis, who is a great uh, author and professor um, from Great Britain and convert to Christianity from atheism, he said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because, I, because by it, I see everything else. It's, it's, we, through, we don't just see it. We see everything else by it and through that lens. And it's not that we just see the S-O-N, the sun, but it is by the S-O-N that we see all of our life, our salvation, which involves our life, our marriages, our children, our work. God values our work. Now, that's probably pretty frustrating to us. I mean, work is one of the necessary evils in life, right? 
Work is something that we do to earn money so that we can live. Or is, it, or is it more than that? Why do we work? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do we work? Why do you work? Some people are like, so I have to pay off debt. So I have something else to do because I can't stand being at home. It could be a lot of different reasons. But we see, and we're going to look at and see today, God created us to work. Now, I understand that some here cannot work. Uh, but we're going to see what, it, what that means for us, for all of us. Whether you are working in a 9-to-5 job, whether you have some type of disability and you cannot work, or maybe that you are a stay-at-home parent, what does that mean to you? We're going to see all of those things today played out, how God values our work and how we are to work. And how we even work if our boss is a jerk, or if we're smarter than our boss. Or what do we do if if we have ambition and don't want to be at that workplace forever? What does this passage say to us? Does that mean I can't quit? Or how do you even talk about work when we're talking about slaves? What does that mean? How do we apply that? That's what we're going to look at today. So I want us to keep in mind some certain questions. Why do I work? Why do I do what I do? How well do I do my work? And how does God want me to do my work? So those are questions that I hope to answer today. But before we go any further, let's pray for God's blessing on our message time. Father, I pray that you might open wide the doors of your word, that we might experience the truth of who you are and what it is that you have done for us, that we might go forth transformed for the glory, honor, and praise of your most holy and precious name. Because you are the God of the impossible, but yet as the God of the impossible, you call us to do and live in such a way that people see that you are the God of our lives. Touch us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to break this passage down one, verse by verse. We're going to walk through this together. Verse 22, let's start off. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Let's start off the word bond servants. Now, remember, the New Testament was written in what language? Greek. It was written in Greek. What we have today are translations. So we want to go back to find the full meaning and expression of what Paul is, uh, or the Holy Spirit is writing through Paul. The word for bondservants is uh, dulioi and refers to someone who belongs to another, a bond slave, one who is without any ownership rights of their own. It's referring to someone's personal slave. Slave? Now, many of us are already going, okay, first of all, I'm not a slave to anybody. Even though I might feel like it, I'm really not. How do we apply this in our period of time? I'm a free person. How, do I, how does this apply to me? Why is it talking about slavery? Is it justifying something that we know is horrendous and wrong? Doesn't this show that the Bible is promoting something that is evil? Now, we're going to really break this down. If we want to get the full meaning of this and see how Christ is to be preeminent in our work, then it requires us understanding the past situation that this was written to. The past situation. And I have notes that you can follow along with in your bulletins if you're so inclined. But to understand the past situation that Paul is writing to. We need to go back. And if we're to understand how this applies to us, we need to understand how it was understood then. We are talking about work, but here it is talking about the issue of being a slave in someone's home. And and if we need to understand that, we need to understand slavery itself. And that means we need to be analyzing the practice of slavery. Slavery in the ancient world ranged 
significantly from people group to people group, from Egyptians, Jews, Greeks, Romans, etc., all over the ancient world. It was a well-established system that gave slaves certain rights depending on the culture. Some cultures were more friendly toward slavery. Others were less so um, and gave more rights than others. In Judaism, slaves had several rights prescribed by the Jewish law or our Old Testament. And slavery in antiquity wasn't so much racially based as it was in the Civil War era in the United States, nor was it as a common practice whereby some people ought to subjugate an entire people group in order to engage in the slave trade. While that did happen, slavery in antiquity was not so much a business as it was in the 18th and 19th century. Now, the conditions for those within slavery differed from person to person, again, people group to people group. Some were treated fairly well. Those who were born into the house of a slave owner and have been taught to perform important domestic in the home, industrial outside of that, business or public tasks, some even becoming doctors, lawyers, nurses, teachers, musicians, or skilled artisans. Now, Roman law legislated the specific treatment of slaves, enabling some of them to receive pay for their services, and if they could afford it, it, purchasing their freedom. And it's not unusual for a slave to have actually better education than their master. Uh, That wasn't unheard of at all. Now, if you had a good home, that was fantastic, but not all slaves had it great. Some had to be working in the mines, being mistreated by the hands of their owners. The rights of slaves differed from people group to people group, as I said before. Some cultures didn't allow the hitting or striking of a slave, while others allowed beating, branding, and even sexual abuse. And the children of slaves were considered the property of the master. And while some urban slaves in the cities could hope of obtaining manumission, which means their freedom, most had no hope whatsoever and were completely uh, and utterly dependent upon the masters, and they had no independent existence of their own. Slavery was a big deal, uh, however, in in the ancient world, and uh, with a large amount of people being slaves. And the reasons that people became slaves were diverse. Either you couldn't afford to pay a debt, So let's think of your credit card debt for a moment. If you missed a payment, there wasn't just a late fee. You could just possibly be brought into slavery. So thinking about that now, I think that we might have a lot of slaves in the church because many people couldn't pay their debt. If you defaulted on that, you would be put into slavery quite possibly. You could sell yourself into slavery because you knew that um, you would be treated better. In other words, you'd get meals. If you were in complete poverty, you could work for someone, live in their home, and agree to be their slave, uh, enter into a contract with them, and then you would uh, receive food and shelter, so on and so forth. Some people were brought into slavery because they were uh, prisoners of war and and others were just simply born into it. Their parents were in slavery. And almost every single ancient society afforded the slaves some type of certain rights, some even owning property or being conferred citizenship. Now, while we're looking at slavery in the ancient world, we're seeing a, some, a snapshot of something in transition. When Paul is writing to them, he is writing about a very established system, as it were. And we can see, though, I mean, people will say all the time, oh, is he condoning slavery? Is the Bible condoning slavery and even promoting it? Because during the Civil War era in the United States, as we, most of us in this room know, the United States was divided between North and South. One of the prominent, not the only, issues was the issue of slavery. With those in the North using the Bible as justification, as stopping slavery and seeing it as a horrendous evil, while those in the South citing passages such as this as a means of 
of biblical justification to keep people within slavery. Now, some, some, they, they're using the Scripture to justify both sides. Now, we look at it. We need to really look in to see what the Scripture says about it. And Paul talks about this, this practice of it, and he's looking within it. And he's not so much calling for an abolition of it because complete society would, would collapse if that were the case. He's trying to show people how to live within it as Christ followers. But he's not saying that he's not saying you have to stay perpetually in it. He's saying that if you have the opportunity to get your freedom, you should. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20 through 24. And if you have uh, uh, one of the pew Bibles with you, that's page 955, or it's a large print Bible, that's on page 1215. And if you, uh, maybe you can't see very well, whatever that case may be, allow me to read it for you. Paul is writing, and he said, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant or slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he was called in the Lord as a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price, meaning Christ died to pay for you. He saved you. He gave his life, his blood to save you. And by you, because you were a prisoner of the evil one. You were captive to your sin. He died to set you free of your sin. He says, he goes on in verse 23, Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, when we look at that, he's saying that if you're in slavery um, and you have the opportunity to get yourself out of it, that's fine. But even if you're a free man, considering yourself now a slave to Jesus... And if you are a slave and an earthly master, you can't get out of that freedom, then consider yourself free in the Lord, knowing that God is, is bigger than this and he's going to work through this for his glory. And when we couple this passage with 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I don't have a page number for that one, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11, we, we read this. Now we know that the law, talking about the Jewish law, is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. Now, this is the next verse in verse 10 that I want us to pay attention to. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, the word there, I want to go back to that word enslavers. It literally means man-stealers. He's saying that people that steal other people to make a profit, to sell them into slavery, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it is a condemnation then of slavery for people that are going into it. He's saying that those people who are doing and perpetuating those things, that is wrong. But for those of you who are in it, it's an established system. It's legal in, this, in the ancient world. It was legal. You need to learn how to live within it. So, so we see here this practice of slavery was going on, and Paul is trying to show them how to live and be a Christ follower in the midst of horrific conditions. It's not a condoning, but it is him trying to help them and support them in the midst of it. Now, how do we move from slavery to work? Well, for us to understand that requires us examining the or origination of work. Where does work come from? Why do we work? Will we work forever? Is there work in heaven? Is there work in heaven? Now, I had a professor, before you answer, I had a professor ask that once to me in a class, to our class, and he said, is there work in heaven? And I snidely responded, 
if, if there's work in heaven, it ain't heaven. And he laughed at me and he said, you will be sorely disappointed. And that made me do a double take. It made me stop and go, what? There's work in heaven? And I started to think about it. I started researching the scriptures and I see that he was right and I was wrong. We see this in, in several passages that I don't have on the scripture on the board for you. Uh, Isaiah 2, chapter 4, where it says that he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Meaning that there's going to be work. There'll be farming. There'll be, uh, they will be working in the new heaven and the new earth. Or Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, that his servants shall serve him. Talking about how serving God, that's work. That's what we see there in Matthew chapter 25, verse 23. Did not God say that if we are faithful over a few things, he will make us ruler over many things? The idea is stewardship, working, that we will work. However, it is work without the curse of the fall affecting us. See, did you know that work was created uh, before the fall of man? In Genesis chapter 2, God created Adam to work and tend the garden. He was to work it. Some people thought, oh, work came after the fall. It was a consequence of the fall. No, work was before that. The consequence of the fall made work hard, made it difficult, made it frustrating, made it so you don't like your boss, made it so people were backbiting, made it so you would work really hard on a project only to have your boss say, no, we're not going to go that way. That's what it, it, it made it very difficult, burdensome, hard. So we see that God created work, and that is, was his plan at creation. See, if we're to understand the past situation, we have to understand that God did create work. It was uh, the plan at creation. It's not a curse, but a gift from God given to us before the fall of man and woman. Although the effects of the fall make our work frustrating and difficult at times, by our work we employ useful skills to glorify God, love our neighbors, and further God's kingdom. See, we can better understand our work assignment from God by studying the work that he did in creation. Remember, God worked. For six days he made the heavens and the earth, and then he rested from his work. He brought order out of chaos A gardener does something similar when he creatively uses the materials at his disposal and rearranges them to produce additional resources for mankind. We were created to be stewards of God's creation through our work. Thus, in Adam's work in the garden can be seen as a metaphor for all work. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, offers the following definition of work. He says it's the rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. It's rearranging. It's, it's doing whatever we do. If we're working with children, it's taking all of that chaos that kids bring with it, learning how they think, how to teach them so that they might learn. And we could transfer this to whatever we do by mastering our work and doing it well so that other people might be able to flourish through that. For example, an architect takes steel, wood, concrete, and glass and rearranges them for the flourishing of mankind. A musician rearranges the raw material of sound to produce music. That is what Adam was called to do in the garden, and that is what we are still called to do in our work today. In the opening chapter of Genesis, God gave Adam a job description. It's called the cultural mandate, sometimes called the creation mandate. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
See, by our work, we employ useful skills to glorify God, love our neighbors, and further God's kingdom. Now, why do we talk about this, and how do we get to slavery? Well, we need to look at the purpose of the prescription. The purpose of the prescription. Why did Paul write this, and what can we glean from it? See, why did Paul write about this at all? Why doesn't he just talk about bigger things? Why does he need to talk about work? Did you know that many of us spend many, many years working? I mean, I'm not just talking about working nine to five. I'm talking that if we were to add all those hours up, and if we were to live, as it says today, uh, that our average lifespan is 78.6 years, how many years of, um, we spend doing work? I mean, literal work, when you string it from side to side. To give you an example, we spend 25 years of our life sleeping. If you lived to 78.6 years old, you spent 24, I mean, 25 years of your life sleeping. You spend 10.5 years of your life working. I mean, straight, 10.5 years. I'm not talking about rest. I'm talking about adding it all together because you're starting when you're an adult. You're working about 40 years, eight hours a day. You have weekends off, vacations, all those kind of things. You spend 10.5 years working. That's a long time. That's a long time. And we see that this work that we do um, is a huge part of our life. If you're not with your family and if you're not sleeping, you're probably working or commuting, <laughs> especially in Chicagoland. There's a lot of commuting going on. Now, see, Christians probably reflected on this topic because of the widespread in- interest in household management. See, there is confusion going on because in Christ, these these social mores, this, this status between slave and freeman was changed. See, this is what we see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Galatians chapter 3, that's page 974. And this says this. Uh, I'll give you a second to turn there. But Paul is writing to them, and he's showing that ontologically, that's a big word, at our essence, in Christ, we are equal. All of these social distinctions are removed in Christ. Male or female, slave or, gr- slave or free man, it's all in Christ they were removed. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, we read this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no, no male and female, for you will all one in Christ Jesus. Is he saying that there aren't men and there aren't women? No. Is he saying that, that everything has changed? He's saying at its essence, before God, we are equal. Now, we have different functions in society, but ontologically, at our essence, we are all equal in Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's a radical concept. I mean, matter of fact, one of the Roman emperors was so frustrated when Christianity made its way into the Roman world, especially among slaves, he said, even the slaves are thinking. Because what of the gospel did? It changed people from the inside out. It changed them from the inside out out. So we see that in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. We also see other words that are given to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13. He says this, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Or Colossians chapter 3 verse 11, just a few verses before our passage for today. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. But Christ is all and in all. So he's showing that in this ancient world, people were confused. They had a lot of weird understandings of who Christians were. 
what it meant to be a follower of Christ. How, I don't get it. These people keep saying they call, to, call each other brother and sister. And they, people accuse Christians of incest because they would also to greet one another with a holy kiss. People were, were misunderstanding that. They also thought that Christians were cannibalistic because they talk about the body and blood of Christ. And Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have no part with me. And it's, it's a metaphorical, it's a spiritual understanding, not a literal, he's going to eat of my flesh. So there was all this confusion of Christianity. And he's saying, this is how you are to live. This is what being a follower of Jesus looks like in the everyday world. We want to talk about miracles. And God does do miracles in life. But when we're so busy looking at the miracles that we forget the daily life, something's wrong. And he's saying, God is the God of the miraculous, but he's also the God of the mundane. We have to see Jesus in those instances as well and how we are to live and how we are to do our job. And in the ancient world, there wasn't the common employer-employee relationship that we have today. The working relationship often occurred in the home. There weren't corporations as we know today or factories as such. There were many, and there weren't as many specialized businesses as we have in our day. Most of the occupations were fairly common. Cobbler, blacksmith, farmer, olive oil, and winemaker. Paul's purpose was not to overturn the entire societal structure but to teach us how to live within it. He wants us to be good workers. That's the principle that we draw out of it. Now, how are we to work? Let's look back at our text. We're back in Colossians in verse 22 and verse 23. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. When Paul says this, he's giving a, us a perspective to remember when we are working. This is perspective. Perspective is everything. Perspective is everything. We need to understand everything that we have and how we are to work because our perspective informs and changes how we are to live and conduct ourselves. You know, it's, it's been told there were three men and they were all brickmakers. They asked the first guy, what are you doing? He goes, what do you think I'm doing? I'm building a wall. The second guy, they said, what are you doing? He goes, uh, he goes I'm building a wall uh, that's going to go all the way up to the sky. And they said, the third guy, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a church that's going to, to help many different people. It was all about perspective. One guy just saw himself as a brickmaker. The next guy was bigger. The other guy had a bigger perspective even more than that. And perspective influences how we live and act. And he's saying here, this is why you do what you do. He says, first of all, obey in everything. Those are your earthly masters. He's not referring to things that are more, are immoral. Just like when we saw the, the husband or wife and parent relationship, it's not a carte blanche to sin. He's not talking about working. Um, he talks about not working by way of eye services, people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Have you ever had a tendency to do your job in such a way when the boss shows up, you have to do it better? Anyone ever done that? Or maybe you're the boss and you notice your employees start changing when they find out you're in the room. You ever had that happen? See, what it's saying here is that, it's, that we are to value honesty and integrity. That's a perspective we're to have, to value honesty. This perspective that we're to have is to value being honest and sincere in what we do. Be honest and a person of integrity. When I think of integrity, I think of the book of Genesis and the man of Joseph. Now, many of you might know this story. It's he of the Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, and I don't think he looked at all like Donny Osmond. But 
that's neither here nor there. Um, this story found in the book of Genesis takes place through many different chapters, through verse chapter 37 along the way through chapter 50. And Joseph, if you remember correctly, if you can remember, he is one of Jacob's sons. And he is, uh, receives these visions and dreams from the Lord that really disturb his father and his brothers. And his, his dad even gives him this coat of many different colors. And it's not just the colors of the coat. Matter of fact, they think it's the, the uh, size of the coat because it was twice as long, which meant he would have twice the amount of inheritance as his brothers. So there's serious jealousy going on. So they don't like that about Joseph. So they come up with a plot that they're going to take their brother out. So they, they capture him, they beat him up, they put him into a pit, and they're like, uh, should we kill him? What should we do? And the other brothers are like, no, we're not going to kill him. How about we sell him into slavery, at least make some money off this deal? They're like, hey, that's a good idea. So they see these guys passing by, a caravan of travelers that are going into Egypt. They sell their brother. I mean, I've had brother issues in my life, but my brother never tried to sell me into slavery. That I know of. Um, and he, uh, they try to sell him, into, they sell him into slavery. He goes in. He is purchased in the slave market by a man named Potiphar. Okay, Potiphar is a, a wealthy to-do Egyptian man. Uh, he has a, a, a wife, family, and Joseph becomes a house slave working among Potiphar's family. He works his way up becoming in charge of the whole house. Matter of fact, in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 39, it says that Potiphar didn't worry about anything that was going on in his house because of how good and how honest Joseph was. But we also see that not only did Potiphar enjoy Joseph, Potiphar's wife enjoyed Joseph. Because apparently he was one good-looking guy. And she began to look at him, and she, in essence, is fantasizing about him. And she says to him, hey, come and stay after, hang out with me after everybody goes. And uh, she tries to bed him and seduce him, and he will not do it. He will not give in to this. To the point where he runs away and uh, he even leaves his jacket there. She's angry at being spurned. So she tells her husband, look, this, you know, this Jew that you brought into our midst, this Israelite, tried to have his way with me and he needs to be arrested, arrested and uh, put in prison. She just couldn't take it anymore, so she has him arrested. So he's arrested, falsely so, and now he's sitting rotting in prison. He's rotting in prison, and yet God is with him, and he continues to be faithful and a person of integrity as he's working there in the midst of the prison. He could have said, I went out of this place. Get me out. I'm not supposed to be here. Uh, you don't know who I am. Come on. But no, he, find, he says, I'm here. This is, who I, this is where I'm at. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. And he works his way up to the point where the jailer recognizes how great he is, puts him in charge of everybody else in the jail, and, and God blesses him. And eventually he goes from the prison, if you remember the story, he is freed and he is taken then to the palace of Pharaoh where he's working for Pharaoh and he becomes second in charge of all of Egypt. And he is, he is a man of honesty and integrity. And remember, remember when I told you that uh, being a slave, even then you, many of them didn't have rights, but when he says obey and everything, he's not referring to something immoral because here the slave owner... Uh, Potiphar's wife was trying to get him to do something immoral, and yet he wouldn't do it. He was honoring God in that way, and God honored him, that he valued honesty. We are to be honest to even when our boss is a jerk, even when we're in dire situations and we can't stay in the work environment, even every time we walk in the room, our boss just, ver- just drops verbal poison on us. We're to continue to testify about God in the midst of it. 
We need to value honesty, sincerity, integrity. We also need to be fearing the Lord. Look at verse 22, the last part of verse 22. Fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Having a fear of God, a reverence for God. We can't just approach God on our own. We come through the body and blood of Christ. But many of us are so flippant in how we come into the presence of God, not realizing that we're coming into the presence of someone that could take our life instantaneously. And think of that power. You know, the psalmist says that you are the one who forgives sins, therefore you should be feared. God is the only one that can forgive your sins. God is the only one that really, truly needs to be feared more than anyone else. Many of us fear men more than we fear God. And he's saying, no, you need to fear the Lord. Many of us fear not having comfort. We fear not having comfort more than we fear God. Or lack of status more than we fear God. That is wrong. We have a greater fear of men than we have a fear of God. And that needs to be changed. I mean, God is a God of love, yes, but he's also a God of wrath. He is both. See, we are working for God, not for men. We're to fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. We need to work for a heavenly boss, not an earthly one. When we're doing our secular jobs, or, uh, or we're, we have to understand that we're working for the Lord even there. He is our boss. He is the ultimate one who judges our performance. What is Paul telling us? He's saying that this perspective that we are to have is one that thinks heavenly. It values honesty, but it thinks heavenly. When your boss is being a jerk, when the people around you are cutthroats, keep your eye on Jesus. Entrust yourself to him, not your boss. It is Jesus to whom we are accountable. It is to Jesus that we are, that, uh, Jesus is the one we are working for. He has become our master. And we are his bondservants working for the Lord and not for men. He is the one from whom we long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Think heavenly. See, we're not to work for our boss really hard when he is around and slack off the rest of the time. Anybody ever done that? I believe many of us have. We're not to be cutting corners when God is our boss. We're not to be stealing from him. or We're not to do second-rate work. We're to understand that we are working for God. He is our boss, and he sees everything. He knows every second of every day. He knows your heart. He knows when you pretend and when you pose. Work for him, and everything else will become clear. Now, we're also to be working with such a way that we are doing it heartily. So we are to be working heartily. See, this perspective that we're to have, it values honesty, it thinks heavenly, and it works Heartily. It means with full of heart, meaning that it is about order and verve. We're to be vital. We're to be doing it. It means from the heart, not just pretending, but with the will, the attitude. It means not doing it halfway, not gossiping, not backbiting, not pouring people down, not complaining about our job all the time. It means giving your job, no matter what it is, all that you got. Why? Because you're not doing it for yourself or your boss, but you're doing it for the Lord. Now, why do all of this? Why do we talk about all this? We need to understand the principle that is being taught. That's the next point that I want you to write down. It's the principle that's being taught. The principle that God wants us to apply to our lives. The principle that is being taught. There is a principle at work here, and we can see it in this passage, and we can see it in several others. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. 
uh, page 998 or 1272. If not, uh, just listen in and I will read it. In Titus chapter 2, Paul again is writing, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adore the doctrine of God, God our Savior. What he's saying here is the principle is for us is this is a duty of our everyday discipleship to do our jobs well. It is a duty of discipleship for you to do your job well. Not taking extra breaks, not trying to steal from the company. That's not what God wants because see, God sees that. It's not you getting back at your boss. You are a bad testimony of Christ and because you are the only Bibles that Some people will ever read, they will blaspheme the name of God, and God's name is not made beautiful by your laziness. God will be made beautiful. The word there actually in Titus says may adorn, beauty. When you are doing what God wants you to do, it makes God look beautiful, glorious. When you are being disobedient, people don't want to know who God is. You are to do your job. We are all to do our jobs well for the glory of God. Now, it's our duty to work and to work well. Does that mean that I can't quit my job? If my job's being a jerk, I can quit. They in the ancient world couldn't quit. That's true. We have freedoms in our time that they did not have. But even if you do quit, even if you do uh, have ambition and want to go on further, while you are there, while you are doing your job, do it well. Don't complain. Don't tell them off when you leave. Okay, this is not the take this job and shove it moment. This is the, I am, you don't even have to say anything. Just testify about God continually. They might see Christ in you. That is the duty of being a disciple of Jesus. Now, doing our work well, submitting to our boss is also a display of order. God is an orderly God. He likes taking, and that's why he's given us the task of taking chaos and bringing order. He takes chaos and brings order. And the word there also for adorn that I just talked about in Titus chapter 2, it, it actually means not just beauty, but bringing order. There's this beauty and order that occurs. You ever had a Rubik's Cube? Anybody ever had a Rubik's Cube? How many of you hate the Rubik's Cube? Okay, I hate the Rubik's Cube. And how many of you have got and seen someone do a Rubik's Cube and then all the pieces fit together? And that's a beautiful thing. See, out of that order comes uh, disorder, out of that chaos comes beauty. See, that's what we're to do. We're to take that job that we have and out of that disorder, we're to help bring order. And that is beautiful. Beautiful. Our working in such a way is also a declaration to the world. Declaration to the world. Mentioned that I, I mentioned that word adorn. And it means to beautify, having the right arrangement, sequence by ordering, to adorn, make compellingly attractive, very appealing, inviting, awesomely gorgeous. When we do our jobs well, we make God look gorgeous. And the world wants to know who God is. Just like the great African-American scientist George Washington Carver. Anyone ever, I hope you've heard of this man. He's a great, great man. Great scientist. Uh, He developed 300 products out of a peanut. It's phenomenal. Just amazing man. Stuff like nitroglycerin. The only book, though, that he ever took, they asked him, how many books do you take into your laboratory? He said, I only bring one, the Bible. 
and I have not discovered anything that God has not already revealed to me. He literally asked God why God made the peanut. By his own testimony, God answered his prayer. He would lock the door of his lab when he was creating things because, as he put it, only alone can I draw close enough to, to God to discover his secrets. See, Carver epitomizes what it means to be a co-worker with God, doing his job well. And In a letter written to Reverend Lyman Ward, Carver declared, I am not interested in science or anything that else that leads God out of it. And at the age of 63, he wrote, Man who needed a purpose, a mission to keep him alive, had one. He could be God's co-worker. My purpose alone must be God's purpose. As I worked on projects which fulfilled a real human need, forces were working through me which amazed me. I would often go to sleep with an apparent, apparently insoluble problem. When I woke, the answer was there. See, he wanted to, to do his work in such a way that God would receive glory from it. Now here is something interesting I would like us to look at in verse 24. We're back in Colossians chapter 3. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Do you, did you know that for, uh, for our work there will be a payment that we all receive? A payment that we all receive. That's the next point that I want you to write down in verse, uh, the fourth point. That is a payment we will all receive. For some, it is a reminder that there will be retribution. Retribution. God will give you back for what you have done for him or did not do. In verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. See, faith puts people not just in the justice in the here and now, but understanding that justice may not be achieved in this lifetime. And justice delayed, however, does not mean that it is denied in eternity. That all accounts will be reconciled. See, we have our, our phones or web browsers now that we use. And we can do a thing after we go to all these places and all these sites. You can do a thing on there called clear history, right? You can delete everything that was in the past. No, no, no measure of it, right? See, with God, you can't clear history with God. Jesus can. But see, Jesus' death, he paid the price for all of those things that we did, all the wrong that we did. And he gave us his righteousness that we can have. That any righteousness that we have only comes from him in the sight of God. But see... For us have done our jobs badly, and we've cheated, and we've lied, and we've stolen. God's going to make sure that you, you might have got away from it, you thought. God's not going to let you get away forever. Unless you have Christ. When you have that, then you want to make restitution for the wrongs that you've done. You will receive forgiveness. And for the good that you have done, you will receive a reward. A reward. We see this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, it's in a lot of part of your New Testament, back part of your Bible, page 1, 2, 4, 5, if you're in the large print. Reward. Paul is writing also these household codes to the Ephesians, and he says, Bondservants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, 
doing the will of God from the heart. Remember, God always wants the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. See, all of this should cause us to rethink our work, how we do our work. That should cause us to rethink why you do what you do. When you get up in the morning, what do you think? When your feet, before they hit the floor, do you say, good God, it's morning? Or do you say, good morning, God. What do you have for me today? How can I testify to your greatness? We need to rethink our work. Now, how does, this, how does all of this affect us for tomorrow? I don't want you to leave today without saying and having some concrete things that you need to be doing and ways that you need to be thinking. So I want to, I want to give us a plan for tomorrow. Here's a plan for tomorrow. When you get up and you go to your work, and, and, and let's say here, if uh, you are able to work, this is how, if you go to work, if you are unable to work, you need to do your task that you find yourself doing them well. If you are a stay-at-home parent, you need to be doing the tasks and work that you have in your home still to the glory of God, knowing that you, are, uh, you may not have a boss over you, per se. You have a heavenly, uh, heavenly master to whom we are accountable. And if you are a person who cannot do a work from 9 to 5, you need to try to see and find opportunities to volunteer and help other people as God wills and do that for his glory. If you are too young, you need to do your school work well. You need to do your work well. I didn't say you always had to get A's. Some parents are like, wait a minute. No, no. You need to do it to the best of your ability. Best of your ability. It's slightly different. You do it, do it to your absolute best. Do absolute best. So for employees, this is what I want you to do. Forget the paycheck. Forget the paycheck. You're not just working for a paycheck. You're working for God now. You're not just doing it to get you a vacation or a 401k. This is you are working for God. I want you to do your job in such a way that people see Jesus in you. Forget the paycheck. And then I want you to focus on the Lord. Focus on the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men. And this means to the just and the jerks. As Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. To the jerks and to the just. Do your work in such a way that God receives glory. Now for the employers, those who are the bosses, this is what I want you to do. Be fair. Be fair with your employees. Don't pick favorites. Don't play favorites. Don't try to shortchange their pay. Give them equal opportunities. Treat them all with respect, regardless of who they are, their background, belief, or past. Love them the way that Jesus does. Be kind, not demeaning. Be generous, generous and be fair. Be, and you might have to fire them. But be kind even as you do so. Be firm and tell them what they need to do in order to keep their next employment well. Secondly, when you are working, make sure you are being faithful in your dealings. Don't try to deceive those who work with you or who do, you do business with. Don't try to use someone else, uh, their idea, and steal it as your own. Don't try to fleece or steal them by running up your prices. Uh, be faithful because while you may be an earthly master, 
You have a heavenly master that you are ultimately accountable to. So let's bring it home. We said that work matters. We know that, we know that marriage matters. We know that family matters. We see that work matters. And it all matters because of what God has done for us. That he gave his son for our salvation. And that we might truly follow him. That, and if you're a person here today and you've not yet trusted in Christ, you said, you know what, I'm still investigating. I'm still trying to learn and understand. Why does this all matter? This sounds like you're just being moral. No. You can't be good enough to get in the presence of God. Only one who was good enough, and that was Jesus. He was the only one that was sinless. That he died that we might have eternal life in and through him. That his blood might cleanse our sins. That might take away our past. That in him we might become the very righteousness of God. As the scripture says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That while we were still yet enemies... Christ died for us. He saw us where we were. He chose to die for us. And then he chose to give his life that we might have life in and through him. And that he becomes our life. And that we live the rest of our days on this earth testifying to his greatness by living our life in such a way that God receives glory, honor, and praise for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, I come into your presence. claiming your promise that your word will not return void but will accomplish the purpose for which it was intended, that it is living and active, that it is God-breathed, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it cuts us to the root and core of who we are. Lord, you are a God of love. We also know that you're a God of wrath. You are a just God. You are a forgiving God. You are the God of hope. You are the God of second chances. You are the God that sees our failures and our sins, our struggles and our sicknesses and our stumblings, and yet you chose to love us. And Lord, you still speak to us now. You have given us grace. You have bestowed us with faith. Lord, we know how often we fail. And Lord, we ask for your power to truly be evidenced in our lives to remove the doubt that we struggle with day in and day out, to show us the reality of who you are and how we are to live, how we might testify to your greatness, your grace, so that the world may know that you are the one true God. Lord, remove any hypocrisy from us. May we live holy lives, and may we cultivate habits of holiness. And Lord, please help us to increase in joy in the knowledge of who you are. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.